0: In so many towns across the world, there's a story of an unsolved case that stays with the people living there. Details and theories of the case are passed down from family or friends, and it keeps the story alive. In the town that I'm from, it's the story of a young girl that went missing in the middle of the night. In the town that I currently live in, it's the story of a young college woman who went missing after going on a job. In Cedar Rapids, Iowa, it's the story of Michelle Martinko. Michelle was born on October 6, 1961 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Cedar Rapids was a relatively small town with about 100,000 residents. Michelle was described as a miracle baby by the family. She did have an older sister that was 12 years older than her, but by the time Michelle was born, her mother was 44 years old and had suffered five miscarriages. So the family was beyond happy when Michelle was born. When she was 12 years old, she was diagnosed with scoliosis and had to wear a brace that went from her neck to her hips. This caused her to be very self-conscious, but about 2 years later, she was able to get rid of the brace and that's when things started changing for her. Around that time, Farrah Fawcett was a name that everyone knew, with a hairstyle that everyone wanted. Michelle had long blonde hair similar to Farrah's and she styled her hair after Farrah's as well and this was also about the time that she met a boy named Andy. They dated for about two years and then Michelle broke up with him. By 1979, Michelle was 18 years old and a senior at Cedar Rapids Kennedy High School where she was described as an excellent student. She was on the twirling team and a part of the school choir. On the evening of December 19, 1979, Michelle went to a banquet held for the choir. After the banquet, she went to the newly opened Westdale Mall to do a little shopping. She had about $180 in cash on her and was looking to buy a new winter coat. She invited a friend to go with her, but it was getting kind of late and the friend declined to go. Even though that friend decided not to go, the mall was a new place and also a place where a lot of teenagers hung out. So while she was at the mall, she ran into a few other friends that she knew but she didn't stop to hang out with them or go shopping with them. She only stopped to talk to them in passing. The mall closed around 10 that night, but by 2 a.m. she had not returned home. Her parents called the police and reported her missing. Around 4 a.m. a police officer went to the mall and found the family's green Buick Electra parked in front of the JCPenney store. As the officer approached the car, he came across A brutal crime scene. Michelle was found slumped over to the passenger seat. She had been stabbed 29 times in the face, neck, and chest. She had defensive wounds from a knife on her hands, which showed that she had fought back against the killer. While there were no fingerprints found to be the suspects, they did find that there were imprints on the car from what was believed to be a rubber glove that the suspect wore. With a crime like this, investigators thought that it had to be someone Michelle knew personally, an attack that seemed personal. The first people that investigators looked into were the men around Michelle's life, starting with ex-boyfriends. One of them was a guy named Mike. He was able to show that he was out of the state when Michelle was attacked. Then came Andy. Andy was the person that everyone believed was responsible. His alibi was that he was home with his mom. While that could be the truth, investigators weren't buying completely into that because, of course, a parent could lie to protect their kid. As they looked into Andy more, there were more things that kept coming up with him. Allegedly, he had been seen as possessive over Michelle and acted jealous of the guys that she talked to after their breakup. Which, he was a teenager, so maybe he'd not handled that well at all. Then, there was someone at Michelle's funeral who said that Andy was acting even more out of character there. He kept saying that he just needed to know who Michelle loved, whether it was him or Mike. So, Andy seemed to be the focus of the investigation. And as time went on, the investigators couldn't get enough evidence to charge him or even place him at the mall. After graduating high school, Andy moved out of town and joined the military. Even Michelle's family believed that Andy was responsible for the murder and as the years went by, they sat and waited, expecting any day for police to arrest him. The first detective that was assigned to Michelle's case was Harvey Denlinger. Through the 80s and 90s, he worked tirelessly on her case, trying his best to bring closure to her family. He and other detectives followed up on hundreds and hundreds of tips as they came in. The tips, they led nowhere ultimately. And really, he didn't have the technology that we have today. When Harvey retired, the case kind of bounced around from detective to detective until 2005, when the case was assigned to Doug Larison. Coincidentally, Doug had his own connection to the case. He and Michelle went to high school together. They weren't close friends, but they didn't know each other. By 2005, Detective Larson had a little more technology available to him than Harvey had in the 80s. As he began going through the thousands of pages of the case report, he found a page that showed a previous detective had sent a sample of blood that was found on the gear shifter of Michelle's car to be tested. Whether it was something where the detective got busy and missed on following up on that or the case changed hands too many times and that detail was overlooked by other detectives, Larson found out that they didn't have any results back from that DNA testing. So Larson followed up on the DNA testing and found that the DNA on the gear shifter belonged to a male. Larson then sent Michelle's dress to the lab to be tested. The test showed that there was also male DNA on her dress, which matched the DNA on the gear shifter. The thought behind this was that Michelle fought back against the killer, causing him to cut himself in some way during the attack, which is how he left the blood on her dress and the gear shifter. Even though they had a DNA profile, the one thing that they didn't have was a person to match it to. Now the investigators, they started going back to all of the guys that were first interviewed, which was mostly people that Michelle went to school with or her family members. They asked over 100 people to voluntarily submit DNA, and they did. And none of them were matching up. They even tracked down Andy, who had been the one person that most everybody in the town suspected of the murder. So he also voluntarily gave his DNA. And for him, it was perfect because if it didn't match, then he was cleared, and it was not a match. This was a huge shock to Michelle's family. Both her mom and dad passed away in the late 90s. They died before having any answers, and they believed Andy was the suspect that was getting away with murder. In an interview of 48 hours, Michelle's sister said that they did feel bad for not believing Andy and thinking that he was a suspect all along. After 10 years of working on the case, Larson did everything that he possibly could. As anyone in the world would feel, he felt burnout. He went to a supervisor and asked if someone else could be assigned the case. And the person was none other than Matthew Denlinger the son of the original detective, Harvey Denlinger. Matthew was only five when his father began investigating Michelle's case. When Matthew was assigned this case, it was very beneficial to him to be able to go to his dad and talk about it and learn details from him firsthand. While technology had evolved even more, Matthew was able to move the case a little further. He sent the DNA profile to a company called Paragon. They were then able to generate what they believed the face of the killer would look like based on the DNA profile. Matthew held a press conference displaying different facial features. The suspect was believed to be a white male with blonde hair and blue eyes. And hundreds and hundreds of tips came in. As Matthew and other detectives followed up on each tip, nothing led to anything promising. But things would start changing soon enough. Alright, I'm going to try and make this really quick, mostly because this is like my fifth time trying to read the ad. (laughs) We have Crime Nerds Coffee Cups. If you would like one, there's a link in the show notes, my Instagram bio, and I'll have one on Facebook. For the next seven days... So that's until September 15th, 2021. You can use promo code Crime Nerds at checkout to get 20% off. And thank you for all the support. And now, back to the show. In 2018, Detective Paul Holes and a lawyer for the FBI, Steve Kramer, changed the world of criminal investigations when they identified Joseph D'Angelo Jr. as the Golden State Killer by using a genealogy site. When Matthew read an article about that case, he knew that he had an answer that he had been looking for. Matthew submitted the DNA to a public website called Jedmatch. They came back with the name Brandy Jennings, showing that she was a relative to the suspect. Brandy was living in Washington state at the time. Matthew then began creating a family tree going back to her great-great grandparents. And what they came up with was three brothers right there in Iowa. And one of them was their killer. Matthew and other investigators tracked down the brothers. They researched them and they set up surveillance on them. They needed DNA samples from all three of them. But the trick was They didn't want to go asking them for voluntary samples because if one brother tipped off another, it could really hurt their case. One brother they followed to lunch. They grabbed a straw from his drink when he finished eating and left the restaurant. Now, just imagine sitting at a restaurant and someone's eating, they pay and leave, and as soon as they leave you notice someone walking over in a suit and dark sunglasses. They snatch the straw out of their cup and put it in a plastic bag. I'm sure they were a little more discreet than that, but that's how it played out in my mind. The second brother, they went through his trash and found a toothbrush. The third one, they played off like the first one. They followed him to a pizza restaurant and took the straw he was using once he left. All three DNA samples were then sent off to the lab to be tested against the DNA samples that were found on the gear shifter and Michelle's dress. And the DNA came back as an exact match to one of the brothers, the third one that they got from the pizza restaurant, Jerry Burns. Jerry was born in December of 1953. He would have been 25 years old at the time that Michelle was murdered in 1979. He grew up about an hour from Cedar Rapids in Manchester, Iowa. Jerry was really a surprise to investigators as they looked more into him. He had no criminal history, he was a well-known business owner in the area, and he didn't have any connection to Michelle, which from the beginning, investigators thought that due to the amount of stabbing she suffered, the killer would have been someone that was close with her. Matthew picked a very specific day to go and interview Jerry at his business. December. 19th, 2018, exactly 39 years since Michelle was murdered and Matthew did that on purpose to see his response when he brought it up as the anniversary of Michelle's death. Throughout the interview in Jerry's office, Matthew explained to him that they had his DNA in Michelle's car and on her dress. Jerry couldn't explain how it would have gotten there, he didn't have any explanation He did say that he had been to that mall before with his family but he wasn't sure the time frame that he had been there. Jerry continued to deny any of the allegations made towards him but despite this the DNA evidence was enough to arrest him. Once he was placed in the back of a patrol car things started getting a little odd. Jerry mentioned that if something like that happened he was sure that it was something that he may have blocked out of his memories. I get he might say some weird things, you know, in a stressful situation, such as getting arrested for murder, but that kind of tops some of the weird stuff to say. Jerry pled not guilty, and Michelle's case went to trial. Before the trial started, a few interesting things happened. First, Jerry's attorney tried to say that the cops needed a search warrant for his DNA when they took the straw. The judge ruled that the straw was discarded property to be thrown away and that they didn't need a search warrant. Good try though. The second thing, a very significant thing, was Jerry's internet search history on his cell phone. The investigators they did do a search warrant on his phone and they found that throughout 2018, he searched for and viewed websites showing blonde women being raped, stabbed, and strangled. The defense they did succeed in getting this information kept out of the trial. The judge ruled that since decades had passed since the murder and the internet searches that they were not directly related. I'm clearly no lawyer, but I feel like the DNA alone inside the car without any explanation is a very hard case to win against. The trial began in February of 2020 and on February 24th the jury found him guilty and he was sentenced to life in prison. While Jerry hasn't been directly linked to any other crimes there was one other thing that he mentioned in his initial interview with Matthew that kind of got people's attention. Completely on his own Jerry mentioned that he had recently seen a new segment on Jody Husentroup. Jody was a 27 year old blonde news anchor in Mason City, Iowa, about two hours from Manchester. She disappeared on June 27, 1995, when she was leaving her house to go to work early in the morning. When the police responded to her house, they described what appeared to be a violent struggle near her car, to include her personal items being thrown all around the area, that included her shoe being left behind and her car keys being bent. But since then there have been no signs of Jody, and no one has been charged in her case. And Jody's case is still an open investigation. There were a few big takeaways from Michelle's case. It's believed that the only reason that the killer's DNA was left in the car was because she fought back so hard that she caused an injury. Even though it took time for the technology to come along, ultimately, Michelle helped investigators solve her own murder by fighting back. The other thing was Matthew. In an interview with 48 Hours, he talked about how he was glad that Michelle's family finally was able to find justice for her and that the case was solved while his dad was still around so that he had answers as well. And this going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode. Thank you for listening.